0: In this week's In Ear Insights, let's talk about marketing best practices. Uh, the things that are, are generally accepted conventional wisdom about what marketers should do and whether or not those best practices are in fact best practices so katie when you think about the marketing best practices that you've heard of over the years um what which ones come to mind
1: i think best practices that i think of are you know best times to post on social media here's your mix of digital channels that you should absolutely have best practice you should have uh presence on social media best practice you should do this at this time and this at this time and so when I think of best practices in general I feel like it should just be a guideline or a starting place to just sort of like I haven't done this thing before so let me see what other people say is a good way to do it but then I think the trap that a lot of people fall into is they never find their own way to do it What works for them and their company, so I feel like best practices are a good starting point. But we want to start to dig into like some common best practices to see does it make sense to forever do it that way.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's like a recipe, right? You start with a recipe from a cookbook. And then you're like, eh, I don't have these ingredients, or I don't particularly like that ingredient, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually, you, you should evolve it to your own. So let's start with one. Um, I was doing some testing uh, this past week, because uh, I was very curious. There's this rule that's been around since 2006, I think, in social media marketing. Uh, It's called the 8020 rule that you should be curating and sharing 80% of your content should be other people's content, and then 20% should be your own. And on a whim, uh, because I've been looking at my own Twitter analytics is like, eh, that's not doing great. So I said, What the heck, Uh, I'm going to take a week and just share nothing but our stuff, Trust Insights, marketing over coffee, and my blog. And much to my surprise, uh, my engagement rates and my uh, reach uh, almost quadrupled the week. And I was like, well, <laughs> uh I, I now have to seriously question this best practice because it, it's at least in, in for my Twitter account, that's not the case.
1: So there's a couple of things. One is it sounds like that best practice is 16 years old. And we know that social media changes almost daily in terms of how people use it, what its intention is. So there's problem number one is you know, the 8020 rule is a 16 year old best practice. Um, And number two, at least this is what I have personally seen is when I look at other brands, I don't see them sharing other than their own content. And so I feel like, you know, we were the ones who were sort of late to the game that that best practice is outdated, because I don't see other people following that best practice at all. Um, I see the majority of people and brands on social media, sharing their own stuff, or sharing someone else's stuff when they are mentioned in that thing. And that's pretty much it. And so I feel like it's sort of I think john was calling it the myth busters this morning when we were talking about this, you know, that sort of the we're busting the myth that you have to share other people's content to get noticed and grow your social accounts, I personally feel like you just need to share interesting content, period. And it can all be yours. If all of your personal content is interesting, people will come find it.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think it's safe to say that at least for this particular best practice, you've got to test it. Um, mm-hmm. Not saying it's right or wrong, it's got to be tested on your account, because your audience may react differently. I think in some ways, um, at least for certainly from my Twitter account, People follow my Twitter account, presumably for me. So sharing my stuff should resonate better than sharing somebody else's stuff. Otherwise, they would just follow that person instead.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the same is true for brand accounts. People follow brand accounts because they want to know what that brand has to say about specific things, what's new, what's coming. If Trust Insights only ever shares other people's content, what are we about? What's our, you know, stake in the ground? What's our opinion? What's our offering? And so I think that it's a good place to start. But I think what we've learned is that people want to know what we're doing, what we're up to. And so we have other people's content, other brands content in our newsletter as a courtesy, like, here's what we're reading. But I would also maybe challenge to see is that still useful too? Or can they just get that somewhere else from the I brand? Think that's
0: a val- I think it's a valid point. And thankfully, because we self host our own uh, email marketing software, we can go into the backend database. So maybe that's a uh, a trial for an upcoming week, look at the performance of all the different links and see what which links are getting the most clicks and go, okay, the ones that are getting the fewest clicks, maybe if, if it is the shared content, maybe it's time for that to go too.
1: I could even see a scenario where we almost break it out into two different newsletters, one that's solely focused on what we're doing. And then a new, like literal news newsletter, like here's what else is going on. So you can have your option to subscribe to the version of the newsletter that is only about Trust Insights. And then the version of the newsletter where you can get curated content. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we can spin it, but I think that it's definitely worth taking a look at the information to see why are people coming to us? Do they want to know about us? Or do they want to know what we think about other things?
0: All right. Uh, Let's tackle number two, single focus SEO, the idea that a page on your website should have a a keyword or key phrase focus. Uh, One of the things that we know Google is doing now is what's called passages. Uh, If you search for a a term on Google, it will uh, now fish out the relevant paragraph or two from your site, um, from a page and highlight that, which means that from an SEO perspective, uh, having just a single focus on a page, if that page does well, if it's done, you've done a good job of promoting and getting links to it, uh, that page could have multiple focus points. And something we've been telling clients now for a few years is a page should almost have like a what why and how structure or the answer the question then the next two questions uh, that the, the user might have so that when search engines dig through it and highlight just the content people want, uh, your page has a better chance of being found. The uh, challenge here from an SEO perspective is that a lot of tools on the market are still very much focused on this page should have this focus term and nothing else.
1: Mm hmm. Well, I think, you know, I think as a best practice, it is good to have some level of focus, so that your, you know, your content isn't about this, and this, and this, and this, and all of these things are disconnected. So, again, sort of, as we've been stating, the best practice, it's a good starting point, but it shouldn't be the only way you're thinking about approaching these things. And so starting with a focus keyword might help your team or, you know, your writers say, Okay, what is this thing even about? But then you can build out the what are the five questions I'm going to answer around this particular keyword. So that may be the way to expand it to have more uh, context around the focus keyword. So there's, you know, I, I personally feel like there's nothing wrong with focusing what the content is about. But then you can sort of within that piece of content answer the variety of questions.
0: Yeah, we would call that semantic focus. What is the topic that this page is about, not just the the individual term? Um, Okay, number three, uh, you should be doing email A B testing with email opens, Uh, you know, which email is open more. And the reason that it's time to retire this one is because of things like Apple's mail privacy protection, which ruins your open rates, it's no longer a reliable measure. So from now on, you should be doing A B testing with click through rates, or if you're just trying to figure out which does better, consider using uh, UTM tracking codes on your links uh, for individual either links or variations and looking at Google Analytics to see where did people go uh, and, and which slice of the audience. When we run our one-click surveys in our newsletter, uh, that goes to a page on the Trust Insights website. And you can see very clearly just in our Google Analytics here, are the options people clicked on.
1: I think A-B testing is not an outdated best practice, I think it's a good thing that you, as much as you have the ability to do so, but just strictly the subject lines to see which ones are open. There's so many other variables in in with that, do you have the right audience? Or do you have the right offer? Um, Are you spamming people who don't want to hear from you in the first place? Uh, You know, and so I think that it's to think of it that black and white to say, you can only AB test You know, the subject line, and that's going to tell you everything you need to know about your email marketing is definitely an outdated best practice.
0: Number four everybody should be doing X where X is Snapchat or TikTok or NFTs or Web3.
1: Everybody Uh, should be taking a long walk off a short pier.
0: (laughs) Wow. So what's your uh, other than other than that? What's your <laughs> take on this?
1: Well, again, you know, and I guess I'm the cynic of the episode this this week. Um, I feel like it's good advice to at least explore for your company, but you as an individual for your, you know, personal brand for your professional brand for the company's brand, you really need to determine how do I want to use this particular thing? What benefit to the business will having a Snapchat channel, or whatever it's called profile account, be for the company is my audience there? Does my audience want that kind of content? What kind of content do I need to produce for Snapchat? Can I get decent metrics? You know, not everything is for everyone. We are in the midst of testing. Does our content, you know, make sense to be on tiktok? Now, we've been testing it for maybe, you know, two months, and it's not doing a whole lot, to be quite honest. Um, you know, and so does that mean we should immediately take it down? I don't know. I think we need to think you like, is our audience there? Is that where people want to be consuming? And if not, that's okay. We have other places where people do want to go to consume our content. So the outdated best practice that you should be doing x, everybody else is doing it, I think is crap. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that it makes sense for you or your business. We haven't you know, created a trust insights NFT. And quite honestly, I don't think we're missing out on anything. Um, You know, trust insights was never on clubhouse. And look how that went, I think we were fine without it. So I think it's listen to what people are saying in terms of what's up and coming, but then do your own research to see if it makes sense for you. It might not, maybe it will. But just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean you have to do it. (laughs)
0: well on that note then katie well what's the best time to post on social media
1: oh well you know that's a great question um your data is going to tell you that regardless of what everyone else is doing your data may be different so chris you want to walk through a better way to approach the best times to post on social media
0: easiest way to do it is to use a scheduling tool of some kind agora pulses are preferred when they are a a trusted size partner um and set up a schedule where you're posting regularly around the clock you know maybe every three hours maybe every four hours maybe every six hours however little or much content you have to share and then look at your metrics and see when is that content being engaged with um that's the easiest way to do it if it's around the clock and consistent then you will be after thirty days. You will say like, this is when people actually engaged with us, and this is when people didn't. And then you can you know do some more refinement. But that's the easiest way. That and looking in things like your Google Analytics account, right? Your Google Analytics account will tell you when you're getting website traffic. Probably don't schedule your big announcements when your website traffic is the lowest. I'm um, you know, just general best practice, right? <laughs> that that's not even a best practice. That's that's just plain common sense. Um, look at the days and times when you get a lot of website traffic, particularly organic search traffic, because you know, people are searching for your stuff. uh, At those times, they're around, they're, they're doing stuff. Um, That's, those are the the two methods I would strongly suggest that everybody use and uh, especially Google Analytics, you don't need to do anything extra, you've already got the data as long as your Google Analytics is set up properly, and you can measure uh, users, which is the scope to use for this do stuff when users are around most
1: mm-hmm. so Chris, why do you think, and this is this is more of a I guess philosophical question for you on the topic of best practices, why do you think um, marketers are always looking like what's the best practice for this, what's the best practice for that instead of coming up with their own way of doing something fear
0: and it comes down to fear we don't want um we have this bizarre culture in marketing and in business that you're not allowed to make mistakes right Mm -hmm. that that you know you will you're being held accountable to all these things and there's no room for errors and so people you know as much uh crap as we like to give him um uh, our our friend and former ceo uh todd jeffman did have some useful things to say one of which was you can either wait for the case study or you can be the case study, right? And a lot of marketers are stuck on that first one. We're waiting for somebody else to have done it first so that we don't have to stick our necks out on the line and be wrong or be embarrassed or show bad results to our stakeholders, you know, and, and that comes from you know, an organizational culture. Uh, where if your culture is in your company is one where mistakes are not permitted, then yeah, you're going to wait for the case study so that you have something to cover your butt with when something doesn't work. It says, well, you know, so-and-so did it and their case study and it worked. So we're to, you know, uh, we're we're going to do that instead of saying, now yeah, let's test it and find out what doesn't work.
1: Mm. I feel like the same is true of industry benchmarks. And so I feel like this is especially true in uh, things like digital ads well, what's the industry benchmark for the, you know, the click through rate or the conversion rate, you can get a general idea of what's worked for someone else, but unless you are running the identical campaign at the identical time with the identical audience and identical copy, your results are gonna be different. You might come within, you know, a few percentage points or maybe you won't even come close to it because there's so many other variables. And I feel like we get stuck, to your point, Chris, in the, well, what is everybody else doing? Did somebody else, do they have the answer that I, so I don't have to try to figure it out? What am I trying to live up to? And it's, it can be disheartening to see sometimes because they're looking at the wrong examples, whereas they should be experimenting, they should be testing things to see what works best for their company.
0: Exactly. And, you know, the whole thing with industry benchmarks and stuff, what we tell our clients is, who cares? Doesn't matter. What you should be focusing on is making your results 1% better than the last report, make your results 1% better than the last thing, you know, if you can just eke out constant improvement over time, Mm -hmm. the benchmarks don't matter. It's you're you need to be able to show that your results are improving gradually over time. You know, we look at the same thing when we look at our own data, we don't really care what the industry average open rate of our newsletter is we care that more people open it this week than last week
1: Mm -hmm. we care that people are consuming the information in our newsletter and saying okay i can do something with that or i have more questions let me reach out to trust insights to get more answers um you know comparing ourselves to larger companies like a mckinsey or a bain or a boston consulting group um you know, is helpful to just sort of get an understanding of what's possible. But unless we are doing all of the exact same things as those companies, it's, you're almost kind of setting yourself up for failure, because those are not, you know, those are not your goals, those are their goals that you're trying to reach. And so really, I guess the whole, you know, point of This conversation, this episode is what works for someone else might not work for you. It's good to look around and see what other people are doing, but don't get so lost in that that you forget to actually carve your own path for your company.
0: Exactly. Now, let's talk about a couple of things that should be best practices that aren't. We'll call them the hidden gems best practices of marketing. Number one, understanding the difference and focusing on the difference between KPIs and OKRs. So Katie, do you want to talk a little bit about this?
1: Um, Yeah, it will be a very little bit because I'm still trying to understand it myself. So, you know, I can say full disclosure, I am a lot of what I do is self-taught and OKR is, you know, it's an acronym and terminology that I only just recently became familiar with. And so I'm trying to understand it. So my high level understanding is that it's objective and key results. And then KPIs, the key performance indicators fall underneath those OKRs. And the KPI is basically how you're measuring your OKR, your objective and key results. That's my general understanding. So I want to dig into it a little bit more. But it's not terminology that we use a lot in marketing. And I don't I honestly don't know why that is. And that's what I'm trying to understand is why am I personally only just learning about this kind of terminology when it it makes so much logical sense. And it's not new terminology. It's been around OKRs, I think, have been around since the 70s. Um, So it should be a best practice because I feel like it just it helps you focus. It's similar to us saying you should always start with a user story as a persona, I want to take an action so that it helps set the stage for what it is you're trying to do, instead of just jumping ahead to, okay, I'm going to need my social media data, and I'm going to need my Google Analytics data. Well, what are you doing with it? Why? Why are you looking at that data? What is the thing you're trying to do? What's the question you're trying to answer? So really, what I'm coming to is that OKRs, okay, user stories, KPIs, All of these different things all kind of amount to the same concept, which is, what is the question you are trying to answer? State that first. What is the purpose of the thing that you're trying to do, and how are you going to determine that you did that thing? So you call it whatever you want, but you need to have some sort of a purpose before you go and do a thing.
0: Yep. Number two, accessibility is everything. So accessibility means making your content available um, in multiple modalities for various types of uh, people with abilities. So for example, we provide closed captioning files um, for our videos. What we are seeing, particularly by Google, is that accessibility data is being used to uh, improve search results. Uh, This is especially true on YouTube. Uh, you are now able to provide, like you know, section and segment files, uh, or and Google can also infer them inside of a video. So, if you are providing the markup needed to make your content accessible to people in different modalities—video, audio, text—for um, the purposes of helping people with disabilities consume your content, you are also dramatically helping search engines and other uh, artificial intelligence tools understand your content and make it easier for them to show the results you want. So for example, in on a web page, if you have good headings and good layout, stuff like that, it makes it easier for screen readers to, to read a page to someone, for example, who's blind. But it also is a foundational piece of how Google was Google's passages, uh, search engine works. So uh, that is one where not a lot of people are are doing the thing. And it's not a ton of extra work. But it benefits you more than just making your content, you know, compliant for accessibility.
1: Well, even think about some of the basic SEO uh, tactics that we try to get ourselves and our clients to do, which is to provide that alt text uh, description for an image. I don't think there's a good understanding of why that's needed. It's not just for Google to say what is this image of but it is for that accessibility so you know if someone you know is vision impaired the alt text will describe to them as they're going through with their screen reader what is in that image and if you've skipped over that then it's just going to say something like image and they won't know you know what the author intended by including that image you know if it's a graph of something, if it's of two people talking, or whatever the thing is, providing that alt text gives the person who can't see the image the ability to see the image.
0: And it tells Google what the image is for when it returns image results uh, in this new multitask unified model. Number three, the things we wish were best practice, but aren't. Rigorous tracking and governance.
1: (laughs) I can tell you why it's not a best practice, because people want the shortcut, they want to get straight to the point and setting up the term rigorous, feels daunting. Um, And it can be however, what you then find on the other side of that exercise is that you have controls in place for predictability for understanding what happened, and then it actually makes executing much, much easier, or change management, or measuring or reporting, all of those things are more efficient, they go faster, because you've taken the time upfront to set up that, you know, governance, really good example of this is UTM tracking governance, we talk about UTMs, you know, all the time and why they are so important to a system like Google Analytics, we know that in Google Analytics 4, you can't change the channel groupings. And that, Google has gotten even more stringent with using UTM codes. And they've even changed the rules around, uh, as we learned on yesterday's uh, last week's live stream, that they've changed the rules around the UTM codes themselves, which is super frustrating. So setting up that governance ahead of time say this is how UTM codes will be used when we use them prevents that guessing game. It prevents the human error prevents the mistake so that when Google is ingesting your data, it's ingesting it correctly and cleanly. Yep. And finally,
0: the uh, wish list of things that we wish were a best practice comes down to testing. We've talked about it this entire episode, you know, testing your assumptions, testing all these different things. And yet, people seem unwilling or unable to do those tests, even the simple things like, Hey, I'm going to try changing up what I shared in my Twitter feed this week. And yet that's how we discover stuff that like, Oh yeah, we're going to change what we share because it, we get better results, um, from, mm-hmm. from going against assumptions. So why are people not doing more testing?
1: You know, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's fear. It's fear of being wrong. It's fear of wasting money. It's fear of looking incompetent. But think about science. Science is all about testing. Science is all about testing a hypothesis or proving or disproving something. Our marketing should follow a similar structure because, again, what works for you, Chris, on your Twitter channel might not work for me on mine. And so if I'm just blindly following everything that you're doing, well, guess what? I'm not you. And so it won't work because I don't have the exact same audience. I don't have the exact same opinions. Um, so actually, I would look very silly if I was doing the exact same things that you were doing, because people would be like, what's wrong with her? That's not who she is at all. Um, you know, because you and I just we think about things a little bit differently, we share different content. And so The other side of that is what if I just started, you know, sharing, I don't know, all kinds of political views or something like that, I have to be okay with people disagreeing with me, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And that comes down to my capability to, you know, be okay with the unknown, that fear, managing that fear, managing those expectations. Am I wasting time? Am I wasting money? is it even going to work? I don't know until I try it. And I think it's that unknown. is That's why people don't do more testing.
0: I agree. So whatever the best practices are within your organization, the first step probably would be to document your existing practices, figure out what you do and what you don't do, and then start figuring out are there things that we should be testing? Are there assumptions we have made based on past results, perhaps in the distant past, like we were talking about with the social media 8020 rule that might not apply anymore? When you take the time to run some tests, when you look when you think about what you could do to make performance better, you might be surprised at just how far off the beaten path uh, your particular audience is willing to let you go. If you've got comments or questions about anything we've talked about, or if you want to share the best practices that you have uh, willfully and and impactfully disobeyed, pop on over to our free slack group, go to trustinsights.ai slash analytics for marketers, where you and over 2300 other marketers are asking and answering each other's questions all the time. We've got some great questions. Uh, in fact, uh, today asking folks uh, their opinions on certain points of view. So uh, drop on by there. And wherever it is you watch or listen to the show, if there's a channel you'd rather have it on, go to trustinsights.ai/slash TI podcast, and you can find uh, other places to consume this content. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.